Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, Whatever Happened to John? And I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you are hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on your YouTube or audio burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. Today's story is our first episode featuring an MIA who lost his life during the Korean War's famous battle at the Chosun Reservoir, also known as the Frozen Chosen. Our hero in today's episode lost his life protecting an airfield so that his wounded buddies could be evacuated. Stay tuned and we'll give you insight into what has been termed the Forgotten War, but ironically, Korea and the Korean War is now in the news almost every day. All of us here at the Foundation want to dedicate this episode to our loyal listeners who are veterans of the 1st Marine Division, and especially those members of the old breed, as they are known, who are on active duty today in Iraq and Afghanistan. And now, on with our show. Today's episode is from one of the oldest cases in the investigative files of the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. It is also, as we said, our first episode about a Korean War MIA. There are almost 8,000 American servicemen and women who remain MIAs from the Korean War. The Korean War, known as the Forgotten War, is one of our conflicts that most Americans are only vaguely aware of. Stay tuned for not only a history lesson, but also the story of sacrifice and valor by a veteran Marine on today's No Home for Heroes. The search for one Marine's fate in North Korea all started with a photograph. The picture was a large 8x10 black and white photo on heavy paper and it would begin a quest into the foggy mist of America's forgotten war. A handsome figure in the photograph in a Marine Corps dress uniform smiled back at me. Well, it was actually more of a mischievous smirk than a smile. I held the photo and I asked my wife, Who's this? Well, that's my Uncle John, my wife replied rather proudly as we were sorting through a big box of family photos. Our sorting session was in preparation for another cross-country move to another job for me as a police chief in a large Florida city. A time-honored family tradition of attempting to lighten the load before the movers arrived and one that seldom produced any tangible benefit in reducing the flotsam and jetsam of life that humans seem bent on accumulating. Well, whatever happened to John, I inquired. Oh, I think he was killed in the war, my wife said, and immediately my interest was piqued. Like a Sherlock Holmes epiphany, the comment sparked an interest in solving a mystery that would span decades. John Andrew Blankenberg was born in the tiny town of Panhandle, Texas in 1924. And yes, Panhandle is actually a town, but it is also the region of Texas known by the shape of its Panhandle. 
It's just a few counties down from the northernmost top of the largest state in the Union. <laughs> At least it was the largest state in the Union in 1924. It was also home to Temple Houston. Some of you who are not Texans may not know who Temple Houston was, but he was the seventh and youngest son of the famous Texas war hero and the first president of the Republic of Texas, Sam Houston. The flamboyant and gifted Temple Houston died of a cerebral hemorrhage at age 45 and is celebrated in the small town of Panhandle, Texas' main attraction, the Square House Museum. Also in the museum, which is the community's oldest structure, is a quotation from the ancient philosopher Cicero. He said, quote, History is the witness of time, the torch of truth, the teacher of life, the messenger of antiquity. <laughs> I wondered, who would be John Blankenberg's messenger of antiquity? John's parents, Paul Frederick Blankenberg, who was of German stock by way of South Dakota, and a native-born Texan, his mother, Leela Elvira Munn, were married just as soon as Paul returned from serving as an army sergeant during World War I. John Blankenberg was the youngest and last of four boys born in less than four years to the Blankenberg family. Soon after John's birth, the Blankenbergs moved to the even smaller community of LaForce, Texas, population noted as a, quote, handful, end quote. When John was eight, Lee Fours became a stop on the railroad built between the bigger towns of Childress and Pampa. The railroad let the whole town ride to Childress and back for free, which was a great thing for the struggling family of an oil field worker like Paul Blankenberg. At such a young age, little did John know that he would take his last journey on that same piece of track and a final trek to Pampa, Texas. John grew tall and strong in the arid Texas panhandle. He did all the typical boy stuff that kids in the country do growing up in the harsh economic conditions of the 1930s. He and his brothers hunted the endless rolling countryside with the family's 22 rifle and their 12-gauge shotgun. They fished in the seemingly always muddy local creeks and played neighborhood games of baseball and softball. And John even later told a Marine Corps recruiter that he played a lot of sandlot tennis which must have made it rough to get a good bounce on the ball. At six feet, one and a half inches tall, weighing 160 pounds, John towered over most of his friends and family alike. But John had a different side that didn't quite fit the rough-and-tumble outdoors life that left him with a two-inch scar on his right shin and a one-inch long scar on his left knee. John loved to draw pictures and portraits, particularly of local girls he knew and he taught himself to take photographs with a small Kodak camera and develop his own prints. John also built model airplane, airplanes to hang in a small bedroom he shared with all of his brothers and dreamed of one day becoming a pilot. At school, John learned to play the clarinet, the bass horn, and even the bugle. By the time John reached his first year at Lee Fours High School, he was good enough to play in the school band. It was during his freshman year in high school that John's oldest brother, Paul Sidney Blankenberg, escaped landlocked Lafours and joined the U.S. Navy. Soon, a steady stream of Brother Paul's letters reached home and told of exotic ports and faraway lands visited on board the Atlantic Fleet cruiser, the USS Brooklyn. John chafed at the inaction of the small town of Lafours compared to his brother's tales of adventure on the high seas. After completing the ninth grade, 
John quit school and took a job as a 17-year-old truck driver for the Hoochin Ice Company in LaFours, Texas. In the days before electric Frigidaires and other models, huge blocks of ice were manufactured and then delivered to individual homes wrapped in burlap and filled with sawdust so they could be placed inside wooden boxes especially built to hold the blocks of ice and keep food fresher for a longer period of time before the ice eventually melted in the Texas heat. This was the originator of the term ice box, which, if you're from Texas or the South, you can still hear that reference. John had his own local delivery route and steered his old Ford highway truck, carefully shifting its four grinding forward gears over the flat roads of surrounding Gray County, Texas. He earned a princely sum of $18 a week, and almost all of it was handed over to his mother every Saturday to help with the family's bills. Finally, John's pleas to his parents were accepted, and Mom and Dad drove their son 57 miles to the big city of Amarillo, Texas, so that John could meet with a recruiter for the United States Marine Corps. There, After only a brief discussion about John being too young to enlist without his parents' consent, Sergeant Marvin G. Myers of the United States Marine Corps typed up a form titled Consent of Parents or Guardian to Enlist a Minor in the United States Marine Corps. Both of John's parents signed the form and said a tearful goodbye as John was put on a train to the Marine Corps' regional center in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. There, John was poked and prodded while passing his pre-induction physical, with the doctor noting that he had blue eyes, brown hair, and a ruddy complexion, and he was officially given the oath as a private in the United States Marine Corps. The date was November 24, 1941, exactly two weeks before an incident that would be forever enshrined in American consciousness as simply Pearl Harbor. After training, Private Blankenberg was assigned to the 2nd Aviation Engineer Battalion of the 1st Marine Division. His unit landed on Guadalcanal on 30 January 1943 and immediately began preparing Henderson Field under intermittent hostile enemy aircraft bombardment. On 4 June 1944, Private Blankenberg sailed for Kwajalein and Inuitok Islands in preparation for the invasion of Guam. He hit the beach with other Marine assault troops on 21 July 1944 under heavy Japanese enemy fire. In three weeks, Private Blankenberg unit sustained six killed and 26 wounded. John continued to participate in the assault and the ultimate capture of Guam while building airfields, roads, and other installations, often while under enemy fire. On 9 February 1945, Private Blankenberg left Guam with his unit for the invasion of Iwo Jima. He went ashore on 20 February 1945 under heavy enemy shell fire and began the task of rebuilding Motoyama Airfield while frequently jumping off his heavy construction equipment, picking up his weapon, and repelling Japanese attacks. In early March, the first B-29 bomber was able to make an emergency landing on the airfield at Iwo Jima, and casualties were airlifted for treatment from the field that Private Blankenberg and his fellow Marines had built on Iwo Jima. On 17 March 1945, Private Blankenberg was transported back to Guam with his unit, where they were stationed until the end of the war. 
After World War II, John was discharged from the Marine Corps, but re-enlisted in Albuquerque, New Mexico on 14 June 1948, and he was soon promoted to sergeant based on his prior service during World War II. Sergeant Blankenberg was assigned to the 1st Marine Engineer Battalion of the 1st Marine Division and was hastily shipped from San Diego, California to Pusan, South Korea in response to a North Korean attack on South Korea. Sergeant Blankenberg's unit arrived on 3 August 1950 and immediately he participated in the Battle of the Pusan Perimeter. Sergeant Blankenberg was withdrawn with his unit from the front lines on 11 September 1950 and participated in General MacArthur's landings at Incheon, Korea on 15 September. He also participated in the Battle of Seoul, during which the South Korean capital was recaptured after house-to-house fighting by Sergeant Blankenberg and his fellow Marines. On 15 October 1950, John's unit was withdrawn and transported around the Korean Peninsula to participate in the landings at Wosan on 16 October. Sergeant Blankenberg fought with his unit northward toward the Chosun Reservoir. John's was a heavy equipment operator whose job was really to build roads and airfields for his fellow Marines in the rifle companies. But, as every Marine learns from day one, all Marines from the commanding general on down to the lowest private have a primary duty as a rifleman especially when the going gets tough. And, as you will hear, apparently, John was a one tough SOB. John was believed to be somewhere around Hagaru at the southern tip of the Chosen Reservoir on November 28, 1950. John's unit was tasked with defending the road leading south and carving out an airfield to evacuate wounded and bringing in supplies. The engineers in John's unit worked around the clock often even using floodlights after dark, despite enemy snipers. On the afternoon of November 29, 1950, an attack was launched by a platoon of engineers from John's company, A Company, against what was known as East Hill. They fought their way up the northern side, but were pinned down by Chinese machine gun fire. They withdrew and moved several hundred yards to the northeast and attacked again. They were led by Lieutenant Canzona. At dusk, Captain King ordered Lieutenant Canzona to bring the platoon back down and dig in for the night. It was a standoff. There were 20 men left in the platoon, including Sergeant John Blankenberg. Unbelievably, in 2007, I located a Marine in the big city of Cleveland, Texas, who had been at Hagaru with John. The Marine was named James McMinn, and well, I think I'll just let the words written to me by Mr. McMinn tell the story from here. Be warned, it's a very gripping story. Dear Rick and family, I am so glad and so blessed to hear from you. I must have thought about John a hundred times during the years. Although I knew John pretty well, I sort of believe I felt a little closer to him because of the circumstances. When we made the Incheon landing, we worked our way into Seoul, Korea, the capital of South Korea. While there, I liberated a Winchester lever-action 12-gauge shotgun from our objective, which was the Seoul Museum. I also got away with some old paper-clad ammunition. On the night of December 1st, 1950, 
John was attached to my machine gun section. Approximately 15 of us were put in a little perimeter about halfway up East Hill at a little village of Hagaru at the Chosen Reservoir. John had asked to use my shotgun as he felt it was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen. Well, so did I. I had never seen a lever-action shotgun. I was glad to let him use it. The weather was bitterly cold. We were told later that it was about 30 to 40 degrees below zero. We were in a horseshoe-shaped perimeter with John on the lower left leg while I manned the machine gun at the top of the horseshoe. The Chinese hit us about midnight in what I now estimate to have been about company strength of, well, maybe 240 men. They knew exactly where we were and hit right on our perimeter. It sure seemed to me that they all had automatic weapons and we were firing everything we had. Over the din of the noise, we could definitely tell when John let loose with his old shotgun. John also had a rifle and we surmised he used it until they got too close, and then he cut loose with his blunderbuss. Old John, and we called him old because he was older than the rest of us. Well, old John was a sweetheart that night. We knew as long as we heard that shotgun going on our left flank, we were secure from that area. Through the din of the noise with rifles and machine guns and mortars and hand grenades, we could still hear old John giving them hell on the left. It was sure a comfort to hear him work. Sometime later, I heard John yell, Gunshot! We didn't know exactly what had happened, but we never heard the shotgun again. We didn't know if he had run out of ammunition or just what might have happened to John. The next day, as the sun came up, after securing the perimeter again, we found John's body. He still had the shotgun in his hand, and there were two Chinese within five feet of him. Both had been hit in the fate with his shotgun. There were others around him, but during the night, snow had covered them, and it was hard to tell how they had died. John was hit in the torso, but with his parka on, it was hard to tell exactly where. Just let me say that John was a Marine's Marine, and stood his ground no matter what happened around him. He was the sort of man you would want in a fight said former private James McMinn. When John's mother was informed of, by telegram of John's death and later that John's body was missing, she refused to believe he was dead, and she wrote several letters to the War Department over the years asking if perhaps there had been a mistake. Maybe, she asked, John was a POW, a prisoner of war, and she pleaded with anyone who would listen to find John. When the war ended, John's body could not be recovered. John's mother refused to believe that he was dead, and she kept his room locked. The room in Lee Fours was full of model airplanes and John's drawings. John was evidently a very good artist, and he liked to draw, as we said, pictures of girls. John's best friend in the Marines from Pampa, Texas, visited John's mother after the war and told her that John volunteered to man his machine gun while he went back down to the rear to warm his hands and feet in the 40-degree below-zero weather. The friend said that when he returned to his position about 15 minutes later, John had been killed, and his friend identified his body as they were carrying it back down the hill after dawn. 
Despite this, John's mother continued to hope that perhaps there had been a mistake and John would someday come home. After the fighting in Korea stopped, both sides signed an armistice which stipulated that the prisoners and recovered remains of the dead would be exchanged. In 1954, during an operation called Operation Glory, a body was recovered from the North Koreans that had been buried as an unknown in a United Nations cemetery at Hung Nam. This is where the Marines from the Frozen Chosen had been finally evacuated after the battle. John's body was identified by the United States Army Central Identification Laboratory using 13 teeth recovered from the unknown, and biometric comparison. John's remains were sent home, and today, Sergeant John Andrew Blankenberg rests with his parents and his brother in Fairview Cemetery in Pampa, Texas. And, thanks to an always faithful Marine, Semper Fi, James McMahon, we finally know whatever happened to John. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to Listen Free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. And a special thanks again to iHeartRadio, who just added our episodes to their available playlists. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website, at www.chiefrickstone.com. You sure don't want to miss our next episode with another true story about one of our missing American heroes. Tune in to hear it for yourself next week on No Home for Heroes. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them.